Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Dr. Anita Collins talking about music and how music affects your teenager's brain and how you can use music to help your teenager develop some really important skills and abilities in their life. Dr. Collins is an award-winning educator, researcher, and writer in the field of brain development and music learning. She wrote one of the most watched TED education films ever made, How Playing an Instrument Benefits Your Brain. She was the lead on-screen expert in the ABC TV series Don't Stop the Music and an associate professor in music and arts education at the University of Canberra, associate fellow of music, mind, and well-being at the University of Melbourne. We're talking today about her new book, The Music Advantage, How Music Helps Your Child Develop, Learn, and Thrive. We're going to talk about how to get your teenager playing an instrument, what to do if your teenager wants to quit playing an instrument, which instruments are best, what types of music are best for teenage brain development, and what to do if you have a teenager who's really, really bad at music. All that and more is coming up today on the show. Dr. Collins, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. So, the book is called The Music Advantage. How Music Helps Your Child Develop, Learn, and Thrive. Um, And this is not something you just kind of decided to write on a whim. You have been studying this topic for a while. Um, So how'd you get into this field? And what made you um, think that you needed to write a book about it? Um, It's a good question. I'm a music teacher by trade basically and I'm still a practicing music teacher and I kind of use that word deliberately I still I'm practicing what I believe is a craft and an art but I was also teaching at university and I was teaching um I was doing teacher training so getting all the teachers ready to go out to teach primary school and high school middle school teachers and I needed to do as part of that I needed to do my PhD I needed to sort of complete that qualification and I was given two pieces of advice the first piece of advice when I was picking my topic was choose something that everybody's researched like everybody's looked at so that like there's so much stuff you can just pick and choose from what they've done and then you can you can get your PhD and the second piece of advice was choose something you will love at the end as much as you love at the beginning mm. and I thought about it and I went you know what the, the thing that's going to make this the most exciting journey for me is is choosing the the harder one which is choosing a topic that I'm going to love at the end and I still like I still do I've, I've kept studying it every single day since but I looked around for the next new thing and I kept reading and reading and reading and reading and I was waiting for that spark moment to go 
this is what you should do. It's so you know, your hell yes moment. <laughs> right. And it came in a really strange way. I read an article that was written by someone who was a music teacher but also a neuroscientist and he interviewed four other neuroscientists and his question was if you got to talk to some music teachers um, and you wanted to tell them something about your research, then what do you think they should know? Mm. Anyway, I read through and I read through and I read through and I got to the end and I was furious. I was just like, I don't need to know all that, right. <laughs> but I have all these other questions. And I took a moment and I said, maybe that's my hell yes moment. Maybe this mm. is my thing to study. So it was it was a pretty... I now look back and go, wow, it was a very brave thing to do because I hadn't studied neuroscience. Um, mm. I hadn't done I hadn't done science at university, but I was fascinated about what was happening inside the brain of my students. Yeah. And all it really was is I wanted to know how to be a better teacher for them. And if I figured if I understood their brain a bit more, then I could teach better. But I think I've learned so much more through the process about my own reading problems as a child. Um, how what I've observed with all of my students. So I still absolutely love it. And I, even before I get out of bed in the morning, I still read all my research alerts and I see what the newest thing out mm, is and I am just yep. so exciting. You mentioned that this helped you sort of understand your own reading problems better. Was that one of the biggest insights that you gained from doing this research? Yeah, I think so. I I was a struggling reader when I was younger and I was one of those children who was very good at hiding that I couldn't read very well. Yeah. And I had all these tricks and I'm sure there's lots of parents out there that have seen their own children go through these own tricks. Yeah. Uh, I think mine was a bit worse because my mum was a, a specialist reading teacher. She helped kids who couldn't read very well learn how to read and here I am as her firstborn child not being able to read very well. Mm. So it helped me understand how I got over that problem because my life seemed to change when I learned how to play the clarinet, but even more than that, when I learned how to read music. Mm. And something changed in my reading and that changed the whole trajectory of my life. If I had stayed a poor reader, I would be doing very different things now. Um, So I really wanted to answer that question, but I didn't figure that question out until I was about, Mm, two and a half years into my PhD when I went, oh, maybe I'm trying to answer this question. Yeah, right. So then um, for parents of teenagers, um, is that like are teenagers um, with reading problems, is that too late for music to help uh, work for them to, you know, improve their reading through music? Or is that because you mentioned in the book there's kind of like a sensitive period for that earlier in life so by the time your kids get to 12 13 14 is it too late for music to help out with that um the fantastic answer is no it's not too late at all it's actually never too late ever <laughs> we can do it all the way through our lives and this is how quickly the music is, how quickly the research is moving it is even since writing the book and even starting my research we're moving so quickly to understand how music helps with all sorts of um, issues all the way through life. Mm. And one of the best research stuff that I've seen for teenagers, because I'm, I'm a high school teacher, so I'm fascinated particularly by them. Okay, yep. And really, really interesting is that kids who haven't played music at all and start when they're 14 and they had reading issues, 
um, improved their reading right up to so they were exactly the same as their peers after about three years of learning. And that's, again, that's changing a life. Wow. That's changing a trajectory of a, of a life to say you're going to finish school and maybe go into college or go into work, but you're going to be um, a, a confident reader. And I think reading is... Reading is a skill for sure and it's important for life, but actually there's a lot more related to it. And I learned it as a child that you identify yourself as a type of learner by how well you can read. Uh, and I wasn't I wasn't a great, I didn't feel great as a learner. I didn't feel confident. I didn't feel like I was smart, all those things that come into it. And the longer it goes on, teenagers will, will really, really experience it too and there's a lot more going on for them. So the more we can... The wonderful thing about music learning is we now know it can change kids' lives into teenagehood but also into adulthood as well and, mm. and it has such an amazing impact all the way through. So one of the other parts of that research I might mention is um, they found that while their their reading levels improved, the, one of the biggest changes in their brains was their decision-making skills. So mm. they started making really much better decisions for themselves and for their peers and understanding you know risk taking and all this sort of other stuff through learning music and help them develop that part of their brain now I don't know about you but the teenagers I teach I am super happy if they've got the best yeah. decision making they could possibly get we can all in get order on to board do all the things <laughs> yeah. so music has an, has an incredible had these amazing impacts we're only really starting to truly understand now So how is that or how does that work? Why is it that learning to play an instrument, which seems totally different from, you know, reading and literacy and decision making, how is it that it's related to all these other um, positive traits? Yeah. Well, the first one related to literacy and reading is we now understand that music processing and language processing are what's called an overlapping neural network in our mm. brain, meaning we use the same part of our brain to do those what seem like quite different tasks yeah. on the outside. So if you're struggling with your language processing, if you go over sort of to a different part of the brain and improve music processing, the brain kind of goes, oh, hang on a second, this is the same pathway. I can get better at, at doing the language processing. So that's a really mm -hmm. simple answer in that it's the same part of the brain doing almost the same task yeah. when it comes to language and music. The decision-making one is fascinating because decision-making relates to something called, I don't know which word you'd use, but it's either impulse control or inhibitory control. It's basically not getting distracted by something, not making a decision on a whim or on an impulse and just going, oh, I just feel like yeah, this right. now, which is very much what teenagers do. They're, they're driven <laughs> So it's having control of that. Of You might feel like doing something that might be a bit risky or might not be good for finishing your homework or something like that. Yeah. But you stop for a moment and you go, oh, maybe that's not a good idea, which is what we mm. learn into adulthood but is truly a very tricky thing to actually be able to do during teenagehood. So that's part of it. And then being able to understand a consequence. You know, if I go and do this now and I don't finish my homework and I have to go and turn up to my class tomorrow, What's the consequence of what I choose to do now with what happens tomorrow? Mm. And, again, teenagers tend to be able to, be able to see over the next 10 minutes yeah. um, and being able to see if I do something this afternoon, it has an impact tomorrow. 
that is the decision-making skills. So it has a lot of different components in it. And the thing about music is it's to play a musical instrument in particular, it's a discipline. You have to do a little bit every day and it's actually you have to try really hard every single day and you get it wrong more than you get it right, but yeah. you sort of see a long-term goal. And that's that's the kind of crossover area where teenagers go, if I practice today, when I go to rehearsal tomorrow, I'm going to be able to play this part. If I do my homework today and I turn up to my class and it's done, then I can feel good about myself, but also I can move on to the, the next bit of learning that mm-hmm. we're going to do. So it, they seem disconnected and, and my hope is with the book that parents can start to see two things that look so incredibly different are actually related when it comes to the processes in the brain. Yeah, and studies show that they support each other. That's really cool. So that sounds really good. Um, These are all traits that we want our teenagers to have. We want them to have the literacy skills, the inhibitory control, the decision-making abilities. Yes. So then are there certain types of music that are better than others or what's as Mozart is the best? Uh, Is there certain like genres? Are there certain instruments that are better than others or certain musical environments that are better than others? Or how do we sort of choose the best you know, activities, musical activities for our kids that will support those skills we want them to learn. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky one because it kind of crosses over with the neuroscience but also with education and then with parenting as well. It's like it's, it's, a, it's such a tricky thing. The research itself shows that it needs, like I said before, it needs to be music that requires discipline to learn. Okay. So it can't be music that we can do quick, like easily and quickly. Mm. So a lot of the time kids, teenagers are great at it. They'll pick up a ukulele and they'll learn how to play the three chords that you need to play a song yep. Yep. and then they'll be able to make a song. That's great and very entertaining but it doesn't really push the brain to grow mm. and change because it's something you accomplish really, really quickly. Yep. Right. Um, whereas if let's take... Mozart's a good example, but music that that sort of there's a lot of, you need a lot of technical skill to actually play. That could be in the genre of jazz. It could be in the genre of punk. It could be in the genre of Mozart and classical music. It could be in the genre of of particular folk musics. As long as you have to work really hard, you have to do a little bit every day and you have to do it for a number of years. So it's not a quick six-month fix. Right. You'll have great mood changes after six months, but cognitively the brain needs a little bit more time to learn and grow. So there's great things that will happen along the way, but it's what we now understand is it's at least two years, if not probably three years, of ongoing music learning, a little bit of practice every day, playing in an ensemble or a group. Singing does come into this as well, but learning an instrument seem to change different parts of the brain, more effective sort of learning parts. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, so there's, I mean, for me as a music teacher, my best instrumentalists are the ones who can sing really well and in tune and in a choir. Uh, And my best choristers are ones who also I'll see, you know, in the morning at rehearsal in mm -hmm. band. So really good musicians can sing and play an instrument as well. It's not an either or. Yeah. Yeah, so they need to just be able to to treat it like a discipline. It's like learning karate. It's like learning how to knit. It's like it's anything that takes learning how to play chess 
It's something that takes a lot of practice, a lot of time, a lot of thinking. The great thing about music is mostly along the way, it's a lot of fun. It just feels like a fun thing to do. So you don't realise it, but you're growing your brain while you're doing a fun and social activity that will is, again, really important for teenagers that they get those positive social signals from their other peers about the things that they do together and, and the music that they make together. So it's, it's very, very important. So kind of a key is not letting them just get comfortable and just kind of keep playing the things that they're already good at or figure out a few like things that they can, do, can really quickly achieve mastery in and then sort of stop there. You want them to be constantly sort of um, moving on to the next thing or trying to master a new skill or um, yeah. figure out some new chord progression that they haven't quite mastered yet. The term I use in the book is being comfortable with discomfort. So sitting always on the edge of what they can do or doing something new they've never done before, but being comfortable in that place of going, I don't quite know what I'm doing, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. Yeah. And we know that teenagers a lot of the time will go, will run away from that. Quite yeah, right. They don't like, I mean, not many adults like discomfort either, <laughs> but we sucks. like to deal with it to be grown-ups. <laughs> but teenagers really aren't comfortable in that space so part of what music learning and music teachers can provide is a language around that discomfort Mm. you know how does it feel where does it live in your body what does your brain think or what's going on in your head when you're being uncomfortable what do you what do you physically want to do do you run away do you want to run away do you want to hide Mm. and as soon as I've worked with my teenagers to to work with them to go let's get some words around this they can now stop and say oh, I'm wanting to do this. I know it's not the right thing to do, but I'm really struggling with my body because I can feel that all my skin is tingling. One of them she has tingly skin. Um, but she can identify it all so she knows when it's happening. And so when she knows when it's happening, she gets more control over what's taking over her body but also how she reacts to it. And that's a really, again, getting control over that is really important as a teenager because that travels through life with you, that skill. You know, it's not like we... We complete school or we, we go out of our teenage years into our adult years and everything's fine. We, we meet a huge number of challenges. And the better we can understand our brain and our body and how it's dealing with discomfort, the better we can deal with all the other things that go along with it. I think you asked me a question before about how do you choose the right music or the right instrument. I think yeah. the right music is about something that's hard. The right instrument's a tricky one yeah. because... They have done research and they've found different brain development due to different instruments, which makes total sense. Sure. But there's no better or worse necessarily. And a lot of it as a music teacher has to do with what instrument does does that teenager like just want to get their hands on and play? Yeah, right. And for some kids it's a piano and other kids it's a, an electric guitar and other kids it's a accordion. It doesn't matter what it is. As long as they love either the sound of it or the feel of it or the look of it or all of those things, I think that's the most important thing. So they need to be able to give them the opportunity to get onto these instruments and play them and see which one they go, oh, this is great. And I love seeing it on a 14-year-old's face (laughs) when they go, this is the one for me. I love trombone. That's That's what we want to see. And that will carry them through all the other stuff that's coming later, which is the discomfort and the frustration and I don't want to practice today and all that stuff. It'll it'll 
pull them through that part to going, you know what, I really do love this instrument. Yeah, there needs to be that excitement there to get them through the three years of struggling. (laughs) One of the biggest complaints I hear from parents is that they are tired of fighting with their kids about homework and studying. If this sounds like you and you're ready to stop pulling your hair out, you might consider hiring your student a tutor. Your tutor can not only teach concepts, but also keep your student accountable and check in to make sure that they're getting their assignments done on time. If you want to see how this might work for your teenager, check out my new tutoring company, ZoomTutor.com. It doesn't cost anything to try us out. Your first session is free. Head on over to ZoomTutor.com, set up your free session, and let us know you heard about us on the Talking to Teens podcast and we'll give you a second free session. So then what do you do if they sort of are giving in to the um, temptation to not practice and to be in the place of like, oh, this is hard, this kind of sucks right now. Um, Like, how do we encourage them or, uh, you know, push them to keep going and not give up? Yeah, and I think you used the two right words, which is encourage and push, and you need as a parent, I think, and music teachers do it too. Yeah. But it's a lot of parents, we deal with that at home. We deal with the meltdowns and the I don't want to practice in the things like that. Um, and I think, again, I'm only just working with this research to figure out the many ways that teenagers sort of tick yeah. But a lot of the time it's going, they don't, so they don't want to practice, so they don't get any better. So then they go, well, I'm no good, I want to give up. Yeah, so it's like they've created right. a cycle. Totally. And what's so interesting is that's a cycle that can continue through life. And it's funny when I talk to parents, they, they say, oh, my daughter wants to give up or my son wants to give up their instrument, they're not having fun anymore. Yeah. And part of me goes, is everything we do in life Life fun isn't fun, is- kiddo. <laughs> life isn't Learn fun. to deal with it now. <laughs> but then some other parents are sort of saying, no, no, let them let them give up now. That's fine. But what sort of message are you sending when stuff gets hard? Yeah, That right. you're okay to give up. And, and suddenly it turns from about being learning music into a teachable and a parenting moment mm, where yeah. you can kind of talk about, you know, this, this really is not feeling like fun right now. But let's look at the longer-term goal, even if the long-term goal is three weeks away when there's a concert. Yeah. Just look. Let's look a little bit further than just this moment when I don't want to do it and let's travel a little bit further and see if we can go, okay, well, it's actually worth learning this skill and sitting in the discomfort for just that little bit longer. Yeah, right. As it, and so that we can actually get to the, the bigger goal. And, again, that that's something we have to do in life. We can sit in jobs and relationships and things and and we're not comfortable but we don't it's not the right decision to leave at that point in time because we need to work on it we need to get to that next bit and I think it's an opportunity to have that conversation to start having language about it and I always find with the teenagers I work with that you have that conversation it's very uncomfortable and you kind of walk away and there's a cranky teenager who might slam their door or get upset but it, it sinks in they think about it a little bit more, a little bit more, and they'll come round, even if it's just a little bit, 
and then you keep working at that. But I really think it's a vehicle for a really important life lesson yeah. that, that that our teenagers will thank us for later on in life. They may yeah. never say it to us, no, but I think won't. it's something we give that they take into their later life. And so it strikes me that then it's important to have whatever that thing is, like that you mentioned, you know, hey, the concert in three weeks or the show, the recital, um, whatever, the talent show that you're getting ready for, just some sort of thing so that it's not just playing the instrument. There's a bit more of that they've like signed on to do it for a certain period of time and that there's going to be like a thing that happens at the end of that time so that so that they have something like to look forward to that will get them through those lulls of just the excitement where they want to um, maybe give up or not practice today but having that like vision in the future of this hey I'm gonna have to get up in front of however many people even if it's just like an open yeah. mic night or some you know something um yeah it strikes me uh yeah it's important to yeah, from a brain perspective, what what I'm counting on is that when they get to that thing, whatever it is, a performance or a show or open mic, whatever, when they get up there and they accomplish that, what triggers in the brain is a huge surge in their reward network. Yeah. And our reward network is the one that goes, that was great, let's do that again. Yeah, right. And that's what I'm banking on, that they will have that experience and they'll kind of forget about all the hard days and the days they didn't want to practice because yeah. that reward network activation is so overwhelming and we love it. It's, it's, it's the, it, these are the moments we remember in life yeah. and I know they're, they're going to have that and all, all my job is as a parent or a teacher is to get them from their low point now to that point where I know that their reward network is going to just do all my work for me. Yeah, right. And so kind of making that arrangement with them ahead of time even or that, yeah, okay, I'll pay for some lessons or we'll get you an instrument, um, but we got to sign you up for something. There's got to be, you know, you're not just going to be playing around in the basement when you feel like it. You know, we got to agree that in six months you're going to do whatever and then, um, you know, just that, that, there's a little bit more of a um, one of those big events on the calendar. Yeah, some some sort of accountability, something that holds them to account. For yeah, especially if there's other going. other kids involved that are counting on them. I mean, that's one of the strongest things. As we know, their peers yeah. are going <laughs> to pressure them for you. You know, so if you get them into a group where other kids are counting on them, then it's like you don't have to be pestering them about hey you need to practice today hey remember you didn't practice today they're beginning to feel like pressured to because their friends are counting on them too yeah, absolutely but so then what how do you handle the practicing like on the days of you know do you like have a schedule and check it off and make sure that your kid is practicing every day or do you sort of just leave it up to them to practice if they feel like practicing or is there some sort of a hybrid um, way that parents should be involved in the practicing of the kids? Yeah, yeah. practice is an interesting one and I think there's not a, a single answer. There's a combination of what's your child like, what do they get motivated by 
and then timing within the the day sort of thing. I think uh, with a lot of kids what I've that have been struggling with their practice, the very first thing is it's um, the same time or every day or it's related to something every day. So, uh, you know, practice needs to be done before dinner. So uh, however dinner is is sort of organised or served, it's something like dinner will be in 20 minutes, becomes this trigger mm-hmm. to go, oh, I've got to do my practice before before dinner's on. That's that's a thing. So it can be related to something in the, the day. Some kids need to get it out of the way early before they even really are thinking too much, so getting it done before school. Ah. Some kids I and teenagers, they need a timer, and almost the timer is a funny one. Sometimes it's like you need to do yeah, 20 minutes practice, let's say. Yeah. And then sometimes, I, and I've tried this with a couple of kids and just to see what they did, and I said, now, you are allowed to practice every day, but you must not do more than 20 minutes. <sighs> And there's something strange about you can't do more than this. Uh, and they, psychology. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then they suddenly start bargaining. They go, oh, can I do 22 minutes today? It's like, oh, okay, fine. And then, oh, can I do 25 minutes today? And then so there's a funny reverse psychology you can mm-hmm. do, I think, with some kids if it works really well. It sort of pushes them to do. It's like when you put a timer on anything, suddenly yeah. we do things faster. Some kids work with a fear of failure and it can actually be a really productive teaching mechanism to sort of say, you know, do you want to do you want to perform well at the recital? Um, how would you feel if you didn't perform up to your own standards? Mm. That's a tricky one because some kids respond really well to it and it pushes them to practice and then some kids have a fear reaction. So that's that's one parents can pick. They can pick their own kids and how they react to things. Um, I think it's also really important to say, you know, instead of doing a practice every day, say you need to do five practices this week of this length, you can decide when they happen. Yeah. And what's really funny is either kids will do what they do with assignments, which is leave them to the last minute (laughs) and then try and do like an hour's practice one day. (laughs) Or some kids will go... And it's usually, I find it's very similar to how they approach their schoolwork. Some kids Uh, will go, I want to get out of the way really soon. So they do it all at the start of the week. mm. It's it's not the most, it should be sort of like exercise. We should try and do something. Yeah, because I always think about it, that we are not just teaching about practicing, we're teaching about routine keeping and habit making. And again, habit making is a a really adult skill. Um, And we often do it for our own children. We make them make habits, but then we don't necessarily teach them how to form that habit mm. themselves. So yeah. giving them different opportunities to make little choices themselves but still having enough practice in the week so that they can continue to get better is is a really interesting way to, to sort of play with their minds and see if you can teach them uh, a new little, a new skill that they can take into life. And it, and you won't probably get it the first time either. I think it's a really about let's try this one, see if that works. And then as kids change and their priorities change and their thinking changes, sometimes we have to change how we help them create habits. Um, but, again, just using the word habit, you know, practice is a habit, something we do every day. What else do you do every day? Oh, I have breakfast. Okay, so let's, you know, you have breakfast every day, you practice every day. We're here with Dr. Anita Collins talking about how music affects the teenage brain. And we're not done yet. 
here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. As much as teenagers might want to be standoffish and don't want to say things that I'm too cool, they actually like sharing knowledge. They like being the knowledgeable one. They're great. You cannot be inauthentic with a teenager, which is why I love them so much. They're great. But then what if they're really not good? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's point. if they're really bombed, if they're really crashed and burned. Yeah, yeah. or if they're yeah. just really not getting it with this instrument or, or, yeah, if they just had a really bad show or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, it's that, that point of going, how do you feel about it? So it allows them to open up and then say, look, I really noticed that um, – you know, this, you're really struggling with this piece. It's, it's, and then, again, there's questions. Do you think it's too hard for you? Mm. Or, you know, has your teacher reached too high to try and get you to do the next piece? Or do you think it's a combination of it's a bit of a, a stretch but also you sort of might, might need to change the way you practice with it? How much is your teacher right. helping you? What have you said? And I always like closing the triangle around the child, the teenager with the parent and the instrumental teacher and the child themselves. So you can't have a teenager telling their instrumental teacher one thing and then telling their parent another thing. It's kind of like, okay. no, no, we're in a triangle here. <laughs> yeah. And having conversations with the teacher is is really good too, even just saying, mm. Look, how do you think my son is going? What do they really need to work on? What are the biggest sticking points they've got? What are their greatest strengths? very similar to when we, we have an interview with their science teacher or, or someone like that sure. um, and what can I do. And in, I think if someone says you just need to support them, I don't think that's good enough. I think we need to say mm. you need to support them by doing this. It has to have that extra bit on the end that says what's one thing I can go away and do that could help. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.